the witch must be taken to the Abbey of Severac, where the monks possess the last copy of an ancient book of rituals that will destroy the witch's powers and end the plague. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 126, and our movie this week, which is week two of Cageapalooza 2021, is the Nicolas Cage starring Season of the Witch from 2011, and here to talk with me about it is September, a.k.a. 9 of 12. September, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you today? I am doing quite well. So you had never seen this movie before, correct? I had not. Okay. I had neither. Um, now, I mentioned Cage of Palooza. I like to, just every August, do nothing but Nick Cage movies for a month. For reasons of two years ago in August, I thought, oh, this would be fun, and it's just become the thing now. I just do it. I, I'm, okay. I'm doing it every you year. You answered a question I was going to ask. <laughs> I was like... Is it his birthday or something? No, I, I actually don't know when his birthday is. I just enjoy his movies, and it seems like something fun to randomly do. So August is Cage month for me. Um, but Nick Cage, for me, is kind of a – he's a treasure because he gives a lot of stuff when it comes to film discussion, both good and bad. And it's rare that you have little to talk about in a project involving Nicolas Cage. So um, – you know, it's just it's just fun. Um, now, had you heard of this movie prior to like the last couple of weeks? Were you familiar with it at all? No, I actually hadn't, which is a little odd because I also really like Nick Cage. I've I haven't seen everything, but I've mm -hmm. seen a lot, and so I went through IMDb trying to find something I hadn't seen, and that I didn't hear of it at all. And Ron Perlman was also in it. How did that happen? Right. We're going to talk about that uh, for sure. So I had I had heard of this movie, but I had not seen it. It This came out in that like 2009 to 2013 era where Cage was literally just not saying no to anybody. Like he was doing everything. He probably put out like four or five movies a year for that stretch of time. And it, it's it's crazy. He So this was a movie, to give a little background to Season of the Witch, this was a script that was sold as a spec script in 2000, and I think it was MGM bought it. And it bounced around to a couple of different studios. MGM had it, then they didn't do anything with it. They sold it off to someone else. Might have been Columbia. It ended up at Relativity Media. And Relativity Media wanted to make it, and they actually wanted Nick Cage in it. And he couldn't do it at first because of scheduling conflicts. Eventually, things cleared up. He could do it. So he got done making Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which is another movie that I haven't seen, but uh, is on my list of uh, I need to see because of Nick Cage, and then immediately went into making this. And I guess he was drawn to it in part because he wanted to kind of honor the old sort of Roger Corman-esque movies, these like low-budget fantasy supernatural movies that would get made. Um, and... That's kind of what this movie is. Um, 
except kind of. low budget is a relative term because I think this was made for like $40 million. So <laughs> I was going to say, because I was really surprised, like, it's not good. Um, in a lot of ways that mm -hmm. we can talk about, but the actual production value, the on-site stuff and the sets are, there's obviously a lot of money there. Yeah. So I would, I echo that sentiment. It's not good. Just straight out, let, let you know ahead of time. It's not a good movie. It's also not a terrible movie. Like I have seen some really bad movies. This got, I have two. Yeah. I'm like an MST3K fan right. and movies of that ilk. And it's not bad enough that you could do much Mike in the bots with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. There, it's weird because it's not good, but it's also not like riffable. There's not a lot of, cause it does the CG in it gets a little I cheap found, looking at parts. Yeah. Um, and I found another really riffable thing. <laughs> I can't, so the rogue that they get in the party. And my oh, yeah, first yeah. Like, take on this movie is it's not the worst D&D um, adventure I've ever sat through. It's true. <laughs> it's very tropey. They collect their party. They have this mission. But the weird scripting and acting choices of some kind of uh, bringing a blanket is like, this is to give you warmth. But then they don't make any pretense at that fantasy fake accent. At one point, the rogue starts talking, and we started riffing like, I'm walking here. He sounded like an Italian from New York. So, yeah, okay. So, so out of place. I, I definitely, I, I want to talk about the cast, because it's not a big cast, but it's a recognizable cast. Like, it's there's a couple of those, hey, it's that guy people in it um, that aren't Nick Cage and Ron Perlman. So let's start with... Uh, the man that we named this month after, which is Nick Cage. He's not terrible in this, but he's also not, he doesn't go full Nick Cage. There's no, there's no moment where he has like a way over the top uh, kind of freak out, but he's also not just sleepwalking through the role because I've seen movies where he does that and he's here. He's invested in this. Not, not a lot, but he's there. Um, but his accent is one like he, and, and Cage does this all the time. He, he does accents that come and go, um, throughout the movie. And he sort of wanted to do something of an accent here and then just kind of gave up. Uh, but then it'll, it'll pop back up for a line or two. Um, now some of that, <laughs> some of that I want to get into because there were some reshoots done, uh, for this, which is not uncommon for a film, but, uh, I'll talk about that in a bit, but but yeah, yeah like, you mentioned, I wondered about reshoots and you mentioned that he had gotten a break in his schedule where he could do it. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing. I wondered if he was filming something else at the same time, because there's only a few scenes where he's blonde. Like when it opens, mm -hmm. he is blonde. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then <laughs> maybe one other shot in the whole movie. <laughs> However, not his worst hairpiece that he's worn in a film. Like. It might not have been consistently no. colored, but at least it looked like his actual hair. Um, <laughs> there's been a few of them that do look like a bird perched on his head. Uh, so, you know, there is that. But yeah, his it's weird because his accent will come and go. He's supposed to be, apparently this takes place in Austria. So I guess he's a German soldier during the Crusades. So why he's got a 
sort of English accent. I'm not sure. But that's that's Cage. Like Cage just does weird stuff like that. The first movie I ever did of Nick Cage for this show, for, for Cage of Palooza, was, was Vampire's Kiss, which if you get a chance to see that, see it, because it is it is not the best version of Nick Cage you'll ever see. But it's not the worst version. It's just the cagiest version. He's just like he was just he, he was young the director it was his first movie and cage just went crazy and in fact there are uh the the commentary track for that movie there's tons of it where he's just like i don't even know what i was doing here i don't know what the accent was i'm not sure why i was doing like acting this way so it sort of had a little bit of that like this sort of quasi british accent or english accent that he kind of tries to do but then he just gives up on um but i thought like Outside of the accent, I thought Cage was fine in this. Although I will say this is one of the few times where you could pluck Nicolas Cage out of that role and insert a half a dozen different actors and probably get the same thing out of them. Because there's nothing there's nothing in his performance here that screams Nicolas Cage. Like, like you get where he's got the bad southern accent in Con Air or the way he played Caster Troy in Face Off or the way that he plays um, the, the the goofy look that he does with the Sorcerer's Apprentice, which was right around the same time. Like, there's none of that. There's no over-the-top with a Ghost Rider. It's just sort of middle of the road. And I think, I think honestly, that's probably the, the, the thing that hurts this movie more than anything else is that he didn't go nuts with it. And it kind of screams for that. Yeah, there were certainly opportunities. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, my favorite thing in the movie was Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman was... I liked seeing him so in this um, in such a different role than I'm used to seeing him in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he... Well, okay, so first of all, Ron Perlman, great in everything he's in. Like, he can be in... Just, he's, he's like Nick Cage. He'll do just about anything, and he's done some crap. He has done some bad movies. But he just has fun. And I love this quote from him I found. See, he's playing the, the character of Felsen, and he said, I love the character. I'm actually more comfortable being a sidekick because I don't get blamed if it's a complete disaster. Um, and, and honestly, like, it's perfect. He's this, he just gets to, he's having fun. You can tell he's having fun in that role. He's just doing oh, yeah. it all. He's doing it all with a wink and a nod, and I loved that. He is, he also had... <laughs> He had a moment in the movie. So when they when when they first go to the little town, and I love the shot of them coming up over the hill, and you see the town and just that tornado of like crows above the city, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, it's a cool look. But when he says, you know, hey, we shouldn't go in there; people are going to recognize us. Um, and then they go into town, and he just leaves his hood off. Nick Cage is covering his hair and he's covering his face and all this. And here's Ron Perlman walking around, just like face out, doesn't care at all. And then, like, if anyone, you know, <laughs> no one would ever recognize him, right? The more look the, or the more recognizable human of the two of them is the one that nobody notices at all. Like, <laughs> how do you not? How do you know who Ron Perlman is and then not recognize him? He just has this this look about him. It's like, yeah, that's I've seen that guy before. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> that, even through 
a lot of makeup, he's recognizable. Yeah, exactly. That cracked me up uh, for whatever reason. Just made me laugh to be like, yeah, no. He he would have been noticed before Nick Cage ever would have been. Like nobody, Nick Cage kind of looks like an everyman. And then you got Ron Perlman and that huge chin. And just, he's got a very like, it's almost like a large face. Like it's it's well, I think he, that character also, it could have been purposeful where he just, he didn't care about getting in a fight. He was ready for a fight whenever it was going to happen. That's true. Compared to Nick Cage trying to, that character trying to figure out, you know, what they're walking into and whatever. That's true. And I also liked how the two of them as characters were friends and they had a very good relationship, but they were very different personalities yet they meshed like they were both in the crusades. They were both fighting, but it almost felt like, like Nick Cage's character, uh, uh, Bayman Bayman was there for a cause. He was there to, at the start anyway, to be there because he felt like it was the right cause to be. Whereas Felson was there because he just wanted to hit people. And it's revealed in the movie. If that story by the fireside was true, he was there to (laughs) get some of his uh, sins, his crimes wiped away. Also true. Yes. Um, Which is something that went on during the crusades. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, I loved the interplay of those two. Like they make the movie. Perlman is just, he's, he's so much fun in the movie and it it definitely, I feel like, uh, uh, taking cage from like a six and a half where he's sitting at to more of like an eight or a nine on the cage scale would have helped make the movie something worth watching again. Um, but it would know, have made it more riffable. Certainly. <laughs> well, and, and I kind of am getting to it, but that's sort of the downside to this movie. It's not good, but it's not bad. It just sort of sits in the middle and it's not, it doesn't have anything that makes it stand out. You know, it's not a so bad, it's good, but it's also not like, oh, this is a really cool idea. It's like you said, it's very tropey. They, you know, they gather the party, they head out on their mission, they run into a couple of things on the road, and then they get to the final and they fight the big bad. Like it's very paint by numbers, uh, D&D campaign. The rogue, by the way, um, the, uh, the swindler or whatever they want to call him, Stephen Graham. Um, I remember him always from the movie Snatch by Guy Ritchie. He was, uh, it was a, that was a year 2000 release, kind of a British gangster film. Um, it's got Brad Pitt, Jason Statham, um, a very young Jason Statham. It's one of his earliest movies, but Tommy, uh, was one of, it was Jason Statham's character's like best friend. And that was Stephen Graham. So I, every time I see him in a movie, all I can think of is him as Tommy. But what's funny is let him have his natural Brit, you know, British English accent instead of whatever New York accent he was putting on in this movie, which he does a that decent, so I mean, he, he does a good American accent. Like you don't think he's not American, but it's so over the top and it just doesn't fit with what they're doing here. Like it's weird. I'll never understand. I mean, it was that, that moment where he just had several lines where it was that, specifically Italian from New York accent. And I was like, that didn't even exist then. I mean, is he he supposed to be Italian? He's trying to do that. (laughs) I don't know. I I really don't know what was going on there. I was uh, playing the game Snake Oil recently Mm -hmm. at the Jen's wedding. 
and there you have to pitch a fake product to someone, right? right? And every time somebody had to play the role of a gangster or a swindler or anything, they would fall into a cheesy Italian accent. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely one that uh, pretty much it's it's. The New York Italian accent is like doing a redneck accent. Everybody does one, whether it's any good or not is another another question, but definitely something that a lot of people do. I don't know. It, but a weird anachronistic, oh, anachronistic uh, there's thing a, to show up in this fantasy movie. There's a few of those, and it's that's another thing. Again, there's anachronisms in this fantasy film set in the 1300s, but not enough to be like it didn't go full on with like like a Knight's Tale, where a Knight's Tale was just mm-hmm. like, look, we're making a movie for the MTV generation. We're just setting it in medieval times. Like nothing about it's going to be like medieval times. They didn't go to that extreme, but they also didn't go to the extreme of or the the other side of it, which was like we're going to try and make this faithful and realistic. We're going to sort of sit again somewhere kind of in the middle. We want it to be taken seriously but almost takes itself too seriously and then they throw in weird anachronisms like that and it takes you out of a moment and it feels really weird um not to mention there's weird kind of structural issues with character motivations i liked claire foy as the girl um whose Mm -hmm. name is revealed as anna at the end her performance was fine but the character it was weird what they were doing with the character throughout the movie her and the priest both um i felt like were were good performances but the way they were written was inconsistent and weird and it was like they were trying to set up a different thing that then they just never paid off i could see that yeah because the only believable un like not predictable through the entire thing you could say this is the trope this is what's going to happen you know bang 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 throughout the story mm-hmm. was there was a period of time where you questioned whether she was guilty, whether the priest was just trying to railroad her because of what everyone knows about witch trials. Um, and they acted it well enough that you at least questioned that for a little while until mm-hmm. she started outright showing her powers. Yeah, well, and not only that, but you have, like, they're implying that he was somehow um, taking liberties with her. Mm-hmm. But then, like, and and there was even moments in the film where the way the music would hit or the the way the shot would be that would make you think maybe he did because he's kind of acting a little bit uh, a little bit dicey, but he's really not. Mm-hmm. Like by the end of the movie, it's revealed, no, he's a good guy. He's a good priest. She was evil the whole time. So it's like hey, you're pulling at a thread, but then you just sort of give up on it. And that was a bummer to me because this is a quick movie. It's only an hour and 35 minutes long. Um, and in a movie that length, pacing – pacing in any movie is important, but pacing in a shorter movie like that, stick to what you got going on. And it felt like they were spitballing and throwing ideas out and just seeing what would stick in, in a lot of places. Yeah. That was, that was for me the, the toughest thing to follow was it just had this weird disjointed, like we spend a lot of time on this tense sequence as they're crossing a, a rickety um, suspension bridge or, or, you know, rope bridge mm-hmm. that could have gone towards like building something with the characters you you set up this, and I know movies like this, you're going to set up to have cannon fodder, right? You've got characters that are just getting introduced to get killed later. But I want to care about them a little bit prior to that, and it's hard when, like, Eckhart, who's the knight, as soon as things happen, all he does is see his daughter, 
and never thinks anything of it. And he get he gets basically bewitched by by her. Um, which okay, actually, I need to talk about this right now. Season of the Witch is the title of this movie, and they want us to think that it's about witch trials, and it's not really at all. And it's conf- it's a it's very misleading title because they even sort of toy with is she a witch is she not a witch and like maybe maybe not no apparently she's possessed by a demon um yeah like we're just gonna reveal that devil because they act like it's really world ending but they never name them but then they use just a standard exorcism and there's no consistency to the manipulations that she's using um, other than the priest saying over and over, well, she's going to use you against each other. And then right. there's all those little threads like you talked about, like on the bridge, she saved the guy. And that's a big reveal of her strength. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, now he's going to be on my side. And as if she's trying to get each of them on her side to use them against each other. But then that never happens. They, If they took more time with it, it would have been a much better movie. Yeah. It, again, it's that disjointedness. Like then suddenly after the wolf attack which is a weird weird scene in itself we'll talk about in a minute but so weird looking. but after that scene suddenly bayman is just like all right screw it i'm killing this i'm killing this woman out of nowhere like he just flips he's gone from trying to protect her to nope i'm going to kill her now and the only thing that stops him is when felson is like dude the monastery is right there we're we're here <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. I feel I was watching it thinking, did I miss a scene? Did did we just skip ahead to, to something else? I'm not sure what's going on here. And it was right after this action sequence with these horrible CG wolves that she apparently called. So she calls them and is controlling them also. Like that was very confusing, that the way she was controlling them. Now, I will give the story a little bit of credit and I liked the idea that when they got to the monastery the realization Bayman had of like no the demon wanted to get here everything it did was was trying to get itself to this point that was like okay that's that's interesting right like it's going through all these it's it's pulling these threads it's going through all these machinations to get what it wants but the movie's making us think something completely different so I liked that it's the problem is by that point you've already tried to kind of pull the the wool over our eyes in a bunch of other different ways and it's just been confusing to me um and i i didn't have any problems following it but it's like but why 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 is she doing this why wolves all of a sudden and why do the wolves faces change that was very odd yeah it goes from being a wolf to more wolf like a demon wolf (laughs) (laughs) demon wolf i guess but we didn't know that yet. Yeah, it was very, very weird. Um, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Maybe it was supposed to be a clue. Uh, <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I think I think maybe it's supposed to somehow give us an idea that there's something beyond witchcraft going on, but they haven't done anything for that. Even the cold open for this, that come, the, the stuff that comes before the title reveal of Season of the Witch, takes place about 100 years prior, by the way, um, which is also odd I, I never understand that when movies do that like have it be a little bit ahead of your story but it doesn't have to be a hundred years prior and then mm-hmm. the movie starts off and then it jumps a hundred years and then it jumps 12 years of the crusades which so it's like it takes forever just to get to the start of our story but that whole cold open 
they're setting it up like it's a witch trial and it is, but then the demon was there the whole time just to get the book, I guess. Like that's not something that makes any sense until the end of the movie. Yeah. At all. I mean, all, all it showed was there are actual, it did show that there are actual supernatural forces at work in this world mm -hmm. and that the book works. Yes. Yeah, and the only but the only connection it really had outside of like, oh, there's supernatural stuff in this book is also that the form that the woman takes when she burns the book is the same as the demon takes at the end of the movie when it reveals itself to be a demon. It's the same, ba same basic look. Um, and again, like that opening scene has a cool idea, which is you've got your three women that are on trial, um, and you've got the young one who's professing. Uh, her innocence and then says, no, 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 look, I did it. What she's going to say, whatever she can to get out of it. You got the one in the middle. It's like, I wasn't doing anything wrong. And then you have the hag uh, type woman who's got the one eye and is, and is like, mm -hmm. you're going to burn in hell. And then when he's pulling the bodies out to, to, to stop them from being able to come back, you know, doing the rituals, nothing happens with the young girl, right? He does the ritual for her. No problem. So she wasn't a witch at all. The old woman, when he pulls her out of there, her body convulses. She spits green yuck out, whatever. So she probably was practicing some kind of witchcraft. Apparently, the, that's a real thing, too. Um, but she's probably the, she's also the only real witch we see in the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then the one that was professing innocence. That one brief character. Yeah. And then the, the one that was professing innocence of, like, I didn't do anything wrong. I was using pig's, pig fat is possessed by a demon. Okay. I don't know. It's very, very, very <laughs> And I strange. thought it was going to be, um, I, I didn't think it was going to take the turn to the demon thing at the end. I really did think, and partially because of that, that it was going to stick with a witchcraft theme mm -hmm. because to me, I mean, I'm kind of a witch. So like, well, geez, one execution, you hang a maiden mother and a crone, you're screwed. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, I, my limited knowledge of things, and I know that. But that's the thing is, there was no real like, there was no tipping hand of anything, and then suddenly it's nope, it's demonic possession. W wait, no, 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 we haven't. You don't, you don't get to do that movie. Like you haven't earned that. You haven't earned anything demonic possession because you've done nothing with it prior to this. Um, and anybody that cites that opening scene is, well, they were setting it up there. No, they weren't. <laughs> they, they might no. in retrospect, maybe, but that's a, that's a long walk to make for that, that payoff. Um, oh, oh, by the way, the best thing about the, uh, the opening scene was Rory McCann, that, that big tall soldier guy, the one that's like, look, they're dead enough for me and walks away. It was Rory McCann mm -hmm. from, uh, Game of Thrones, the hound in Game of Thrones. And right. he was, uh, he was the, um. If you've seen Hot Fuzz, he was the trolley boy that says Yarp. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love Rory McCann. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you get Rory McCann and you use him for 30 seconds and he's gone. He must have just been like passing right? through. He was we were just, hoping we would see him again. but I was hoping so too. Like I get Christopher Lee, by the way, nice. That's a nice. Had to... Oh yeah. Christopher Lee is a really excellent touch. I love that you played that for the intro today. Yeah. It's basically like his Having one line. Not taking full advantage is an absolute shame. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, you know, he, cause I mean, Rory McCann would have been great to have in your party, in your D and D party. 
Not that not that Ulrich Thompson as Eckhart was bad. I kind of liked that. Um, but again, it's that tropey thing. Like you had the young kid who wants to prove himself, and then he you have to have the tropey scene where he insults somebody or does something to be to embarrass himself, and then has to have some kind of a knockdown drag out. Um, which again, it's Ron Perlman doing it, so I kind of give it a slight pass. But it's such a tropey scene where he's like, "I'm going to teach this kid a lesson now." Um, <laughs> it's like you had your paladin. I, I feel like mm-hmm. Nick Cage's character was a paladin, and then um, Ron per- Perlman's character was the barbarian. Oh yeah. Yep. And then you had your rogue thief, and you had your cleric. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, they ticked all the boxes. And again, it's not bad. It's just not good. Um, and it it feels like a it feels like a spec script that bounced around and just kind of found a home and they're like, yeah, let's run with it and let's do this. There were reshoots done. So it was originally going to come out uh, a year prior. And depending on where you read and kind of what accounts you get, the story changes a a tiny bit, but basically it was, it was set to come out. Dominic Senna had directed this. Um, He is a director that did gone in 60 seconds with Nick Cage um, in 99 and then he did, or 2000 and then he did uh swordfish was another one of his movies. Um, so he had directed this. He's fine. I don't, I don't love him as a director, but the guy they brought in to do the reshoots was Brett Ratner, who was, um, responsible for all three rush hour films and X-Men, the last stand. Um, Brett Ratner, not a great director in my opinion. I don't, I don't particularly like him. Um, and, I didn't know that he had done any reshoots on this until after I, I read about it. Um, but that probably is why there's parts of this movie that feel like like a different movie, that the tone of them is weird and different. Um, because I feel like... I f- feel like everything up to the bridge was one movie, and then after the bridge, mm-hmm. it, things take a turn. They go a little different. You get the the wolf chase... And then the last 25 minutes at the monastery feel like a totally different movie. Um, well, all the CGI mm-hmm. is at the end there too. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the other part of it too, which kind of makes me think that was what a lot of the reshoots were. Plus again, tropey movie and did a tropey thing, which is as they're riding up to the monastery, Bayman and Felsen have this conversation where Felsen talks about wanting to go back to his home his home village where he, the Valley where he was born and we'll sit around the table and tell stories. I'm like, okay, so Ron Perlman dies like <laughs> exactly. immediately as I'm watching. I'm like, so he doesn't make it to the end of the movie. I mean, I didn't expect that everyone would, but as soon as that conversation started, I'm like, Oh, come on, he's dead. You've killed him already. And we're now we're just counting the minutes until he actually does die. Um, yeah. And I, I was surprised a little bit that, the only characters to make it to the end were uh, Kay and the girl, which is what she's credited as. I think Anna is the name they give her at the end. Mm-hmm. But I was a little bit surprised they were the only ones to survive. Because um, usually a movie like this leaves a couple of people kicking. And nope, they were like, everybody goes. Um, yeah, I thought Kay was going to die, but then when the priest died i was like oh well they still need someone who can speak latin for a little longer so he's good yep the altar boy can speak latin (laughs) i knew he'd survive 
It also had that tropey ending of them riding off and the voiceover from Anna about like, oh, yeah. just, you know, basically everything was great and we lived happily ever after. <laughs> that was, oh, that felt tacked on. There's some weird, weird choices in this movie that it, okay. It warrants not getting good reviews. I do think that, I think it's Rotten Tomato score is like 11%. It's maybe a little bit low. It's better than that. I've seen, I've seen some movies with a higher Rotten Tomato score that are garbage, and that I never mm-hmm. want to watch again. I watched a horror movie a couple of weeks ago called The Call, that was just terrible. I would watch this movie tonight again before watching The Call, um, and that was a movie that that only came out like two years ago. So, it's I, I would I've, have been disappointed if I had paid for a movie ticket to see it oh for sure yeah no no this is a uh you know back when uh video rental store still existed this was a you know a weekend rental or you know now it would be a, a stream right finding it on if it happened if you happen to cross it on a netflix or a hulu and you're like huh nick cage season of the witch yeah sure why not but no paying it's red boxable yeah yeah but paying full full freight for it in a the theater i would have been pretty upset i agree with that which again <laughs> You know, Nick Cage, Ron Perlman, you get a cameo from Christopher Lee, which is always great um, to see him and hear just hear that voice. I will say the early stages and even the stuff at the end with the, the practical effect makeup of all the plague stuff that was going on, that was really good. Mm-hmm. They spent some money and some time on that. They made that look good. The CG that they did wasn't. Um, that felt rushed and it felt like they they cut a lot of corners there which is unfortunate because i know um i know a lot of work went into trying to make that demon but then they wanted to have it have dark gray skin and the whole scene takes place in a monastery where the only light is from a torch so it's like oh man you're just putting yourself in a corner with that um because it's just gonna it's not gonna look good so yeah it was it bums me out because I, I feel like there's a, there, there are some, some real good kind of seeds and kernels of ideas in this that could have been kind of fun even for, cause I, I have nothing wrong with the trope fest, you know, D and D adventure movies. Like those are, those right. can be a lot of fun. I get when I read about Nick Cage saying he wanted to do this because it was like some of those old fantasy films or those old supernatural based films of Roger Corman and they would star Christopher Lee and, and all this kind of stuff. That to me is cool. Like I love those movies. I can sit back and watch a dumb movie and just eat popcorn. I got no problem with that. And this could have been that, but the execution just got muddled. Um, and yeah, they it, absolutely it, fell short of that. Yeah, and and I mean, it's a simple story. Tell the simple story. Don't muddy it up with getting a little too cute. And I think that's really where it came from. Is it was it was trying to have this reveal of oh she's not actually a. She's not a witch. She's a demon. And then the demon's voice, that voice coming out of that uh, that CG demon just really was weird, too. Like, that didn't fit for me at all. Um, but again, you you, you revealed At least he didn't nothing. have a weird accent. True. He didn't sound like a New York cab driver. Um, <laughs> but it was just like, I think the demon reveal wouldn't have been sat wrong with me had they tipped their hand about it a little bit throughout the movie and talked there's no dialogue even about demonic possession or anything like that it's all just she's a witch and she'll turn you against each other 
which she didn't even really do that. I mean, as close as we got to turning anybody against each other is make Eckhart think he sees his daughter and run into the other kid's sword. Yeah, like, just kind of trying to get them to protect her so she can get to the monastery. Yeah, and then as soon as like, as soon as that all happens and she she goes back to acting innocent, how much of that did Anna remember? Any of it or not? Like, uh, it's all it's all really oddly confusing. Um, the wolf thing too. Like, it's at that point that that the movie turns and and it's just bad. Like, if you haven't seen it, the 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 CG for those wolves is really awful. Um, plus, it's the other thing with this movie is it's dark. And they did a lot of it. But they did a it was lot. Bad, of it. and then they kept doing it and doing it. <laughs> it kept and going. It. <laughs> like they had a wave of them come through, and then it was setting up, and then another wave of them come through, and then they run, and they're getting chased, and then a third attack that finally kills um, Hagamar, our uh, our rogue. So yeah, someone. Was, Someone who worked on that CG was really proud of it, or mm-hmm. they just said, we spent so much money on it, we're going to keep it in, because... Right. Just... We set all this up, we've got to use it, we don't have anything else. Um, and, I mean, again, there's there's a lot that you could like about this, but I don't... I, it's just not... It's not that great. And it's unfortunate, because Ron Perlman is so good in it, and he's so much mm. fun. And I mean, even the opening sequence is kind of strange to me because it's, it's the crusade and it sort of sets up, I guess what they're trying to go for is, is this idea of the, the knight in the crusades losing his, his faith in the church, but not his faith in God, I guess he doesn't really lose that even though he flips and is ready to kill her at a moment's notice. Right. And they kind of make the church into the bad guys in your head, mm-hmm. which is a really strange thing to do. I guess it's, I guess it's sort of a redemption arc for the main characters being yeah. actual servants of God compared to the church who's trying to persecute witches instead of, you know, protecting the world against demons. I mean, if you want to look at it that way, but about True. the beginning, I did think, of course, it was over the top, impossible levels of combat when they're having their little buddy combat competition <laughs> how many <laughs> who's buying drinks depends on oh, who yeah. you kill you know um all i can think of is uh legolas and you know, the, <laughs> the game yep. yep but the fight choreography itself was very good it was Sadly, that was a spot in the movie where I felt like some of the lower budget showed because you could see good bit of that stuff while the choreography itself was good. It felt like I was watching something that was shot on a soundstage and then green screened as opposed to yeah. like the way that they they comped in the backgrounds felt like a like a, a comp shot as opposed to um I just feel like they could have like backed the camera up a little bit and given us a wider shot to feel the scale of these battles. It made it feel a little yeah, bit small. Given the quality of CG we thought they were capable of, they would have cut and pasted crowds and it looked much worse. This is very true. You're not wrong there. Um, I also think the opening was just too long. We didn't need to see five battles. Um, Because it was... I, I think I wrote it down. They showed us battles from 
1332, 34, 37, 39, and 1344 is where it ended at the Battle of Smyrna. Um, I feel like you could have condensed that down just a little bit. And it's funny to say well, that was... in a movie that's only an hour and a half long. But... <laughs> yeah. Use that but it was time. only the only time we had to get invested in their friendship. True. And it was a buddy cop movie. Yeah. In a lot of ways it was. Um, I, I just feel like you could have you could have condensed that part down and then used some of that runtime to better flesh out things later on. Because uh, again, so the, the best parts of the movie are, are Cage and Perlman. You know, when they go to their, uh, their cell, like that's a great moment. Um, mm-hmm. just them talking. And then when they're riding and he's, he mentions, uh, you know, well, you felt how strong she is. I've seen, you know, I've seen a woman destroy a man without lifting a finger. Hey, look, we were in France. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like that kind of stuff is fun. Um, but yeah, and and then like I said, just trying. It felt like a twist for the sake of being a twist. To suddenly, it's a demon, and that part. Just yeah, felt it, it seemed unearned. like even though it was so short, they ran out of time. Yeah, <laughs> and slept that ending on. Yep, and then you have all the like the demon calls forth other souls to inhabit the dead bodies of the priests, so that they can fight for it. I guess somehow. I don't know. That was that was strange. Like that. Why wasn't like, they doing that when they were in a play town surrounded by bodies? Right. This is a, a wholly inefficient demon. Because <laughs> if if the demon's whole point was to get to this monastery, okay, fine. Uh, I will I will take the leap of faith that it needs help to get there. That it can't just appear there. If we're gonna go that route, as soon as they got there, demon should have been like stretching and melting those bars and just being like, well, I'm home and I'm going to go burn me some books. Like that's what the demon would have done. It wouldn't have sat and waited while they went searching through to find the book that it wants. That demon would have just been like, burn this whole place to the ground. Book's gone. We're good. (laughs) It's just, it obviously could. Right. Yeah. It just feels like this demon didn't plan things out very well. Maybe it just needed to get mad enough. Maybe it was like the Hulk. It <laughs> yeah, couldn't go. actually burn the cage down around it until holy water got thrown at it. It needed to hear those words of the exorcism. It was that's what triggered it. And then it could go full actual Nick Cage, which we didn't get to see from Nick Cage. No, we got we got so close in one scene and it just didn't happen. He He yells once throughout the whole movie, which is really something. <laughs> I do have a couple of audio clips. I got to play them because, again, we're, we're talking Nick Cage. Um, uh, oh, here's your, um, here is your uh, accent um, from, uh, from Stephen, uh, Stephen Graham. Perhaps you'd like to help me with fruit or kick me in the groin. I just like that line. Like, <laughs> okay, help you with fruit? What is that? I'm not sure what that means. Um. And then the scream that they put in, I'm pretty sure this was not Stephen Graham, uh, but this I had to get this scream. Because that's a good one. That's that's when he's getting attacked by the wolves. Isn't, is that the Wilhelm? It's really close to the Wilhelm. It isn't the Wilhelm. Uh, thankfully, okay. I did not detect the Wilhelm scream in this movie. Um, but it's close. You're right. It's not very far off. Um I also, this was another Stephen Graham moment, and I just liked this exchange. Put your mind on something else. She's trying to frighten you. It's working. <laughs> it's working. 
I want they needed more like he felt again uh, bad weird accent choices aside he felt like a character that needed to be more in the movie he would sort of come and go like he would be in scenes and then you'd forget about him for 20 minutes and then he'd pop back up yeah like, there and needed to that be more kind of, of that. comic relief thing he was doing would have made the pacing better yeah again if you're gonna go because he's he's very anachronistic just dive into it go let let him dive into the pool and swim and have fun um uh okay oh this so i got a couple of ron perlman moments um and the, there's some nick cage in Yay. here too uh but uh there's this one you ever get the feeling god has too many enemies being his friend is not so easy either <laughs> oh, good old mid-battle banter. Gotta love that. Oh, yes. Um, I just love Ron Perlman's voice. I could listen to him all day. And then when he delivers stuff like... What do they do with deserters anyway? Like, oh, oh, it's just so good. Syrupy, yes. syrupy voice. That that scene was great, too, because he's like, do they, do they hang them? Do they burn them? <laughs> just eh, probably both. <laughs> Um, there, this one was funny. We spent nights in much worse places than this. What is that smell? That would be you. <laughs> there again. There again. <laughs> I love There's... that. He does the pits check. And he's oh like, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Look at that. That's that buddy cop stuff. That like lean into that. Do more of that. That make that would leaning into that. Leaning into the Hagamar character would make this movie more memorable it would make it stand out from every other sort of historical but fantastic supernatural laden movie of the time that that all has the same gray color palette where everything is brown and gray because there's very little color in this yeah, I, and completely I, agree. I get i and and i get why movies do that they're like well it was a, there wasn't a lot of color around back then no there was there was plenty of color around back then let's see it it's going to be more visually interesting than everything being gray and brown and mud covered. But, oh well. Um, okay, two Nick Cage moments uh, to play here. This one was, I had to capture this more so because the line itself gets mocked in the next scene. But I just, the this was a, this was a thing where Nick Cage really could have had fun with it. Instead, he went very middle of the road, but then they make fun of it after. I serve the church no more. And there's that, just a little bit of that accent there. Again, you're like, what are you, what are you doing there, Nick? What is that? I'm not sure, <laughs> but we don't have enough time to do another take, so we're just going to move on. Um, but then this is as close to a Nicolas Cage kind of cagey freakout moment as we got in this movie, and the movie could have used more of this. No man has spilled more blood in God's name than I. A benevolent God would not ask such things of men! Come on, Nick, do more of that. Yell more, please. <laughs> do you even know it's what he said there? Because <laughs> he's definitely chewing through his words there. <laughs> That's one of those that, like, <laughs> I could probably record that and tell people that it's something completely different and they would believe me just because he's, he's at that point, he's just making noise by the end of that clip. Um, but there again, the, the accent was sort of in there. Kind of, but then only really on like one or two words, and then he just blew up. I want more of that. Give me something that's more memorable. 
Yes. Also, I will say the scene on the bridge, the second half of it was pretty good. The first, I like the first part of it where he's walking across with the horse. Yeah, okay. I see what you're doing. You're, you're trying to build the tension, but the stuff that happened with them having to push the cart across, that for me was pretty good. I enjoyed that. Um, I just wish the rest of the movie could have felt the same. Because then right after that, we got the wolves. Yeah, I think it's the only successful building of suspense they had. Yeah, definitely. Well, because then they went to CG after that. We had the wolves and then we had the demon. <laughs> so well, I'm not letting those wolves go. Those wolves were bad. They were, oh, they were so really bad. bad. I mean... They're like... The, the, what year was this again, this movie? 2011 is when it came out. 2010. <sighs> I mean, the wolf... The wolf creature in Brotherhood of the Wolf was better than that. And that, that movie is like 2003, I think. Um, and with it having it next to such good practical effects. Yeah. I it think, makes it more heinous. I think so. Because you could tell they put the money and the effort into those the makeup effects. Like that makeup looked gnarly um, in every scene that they showed it in. And they definitely showed it. Uh, and then to have... I mean, Remus Lupin looked like a better wolf in his wolf form in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban than these wolves in this movie did. American werewolf in London (laughs) transformations were better. True, true. But it's just, uh, I don't know. I I didn't, I think I would have, the wolves wouldn't bother me so much if they hadn't done the weird facial transition that they did for unknown reasons like that that was the thing that was the bridge too far for me i can i can let go some somewhat cheap looking cg on an animal because animals are hard to do and when you have to do that many of them and you can you can hide a little bit of it in the dark you know it's set at night and there's fog okay cool but then you deliberately show their face and their face morph and not once but like half a dozen times (laughs) i'm but not all of them yeah yeah a little more, and then a couple more, and then a couple more. It's bad. Not all at once. <laughs> no, no. And and then it, the CG didn't get better, with unfortunately, with the, the demon. The demon was not uh, not great. It was better, but it wasn't great. It was, yeah. It, and it was so awkwardly proportioned, and the way it moved it was just... Part of me, my brain was like... Is he going to do a bit? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, yeah. And then, like, apparently demons have just uh, the ability to turn people, like, light people on fire, I guess. Because that's what he does to Ron Perlman. Um, But what's odd is the demon can't touch the book itself. But yet we saw at the beginning of the movie the demon just make the book catch on fire. So, but he can't touch the book himself. But... Touching a priest apparently isn't a problem for the demon, although I'm not as versed on my Roman Catholicism to know if that's supposed to be something they can't do, but I thought I remember reading somewhere in my life that like demons aren't supposed to be able to touch somebody. I don't know. Um, people, yes. Objects, no. Catholics are weird like that. Okay. That was also, it felt like a very unceremonious end for that character of de Belzac. Like, his his whole thing in the movie was was strange. Is he a good guy? Is he kind of shady? No, I guess he is a good guy. Oh, and he's dead. 
Yeah, that was really disappointing. Because, like, they took us on this journey and then actually went ahead and killed. I mean, yeah, everyone can't live, but killed all the ones you actually liked. Yeah, yep. Uh, and because we don't get to know the kid, K, enough to really care, but yet he gets knighted, um, which was, that was another one of those scenes where I'm like, okay, so they're knighting him, which means he's going to die now? Now, they didn't kill him. Um, I like the knighting thing. It was kind of like just, aww. <laughs> of course he's going to do that, but, oh, it's cute. But then they did a, the actual swearing um, was completely different than any I've actually ever heard. Right, yeah. They just made that up? I think so. Uh, it, like, it sounded like the lyrics to a song by Kansas. Yeah. So, <laughs> and was... after setting up like battle after battle and using real historical stuff, and then they did that with the knighting. It was like, did you need rights to this? I'm pretty sure it's public domain. <laughs> yeah. I think at this point it's passed into public domain. Um, and uh, there was such a long stretch too in between the death of Eckhart and then our next character to die, which was Hagamar. That also, like the pacing of that was weird. Because usually you would think in a movie you you kind of want to build, 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 and then you start picking people off, right? Like Predator is a good example of a film that gets its pacing down because John McTiernan, the director, really knows how to pace a movie and, and do action. So that movie built and built and built, but once they started stuff with the Predator and characters dying, they went all for it, and they were getting picked off left and right. And that pacing keeps the tension and keeps you invested. In this, it was like... We're going to build a little bit and then we're going to have this weird scene and the guy's going to die and we're going to mourn over him, but then move right on. And then we, we've forgotten about him within the next day, but then there's enough time before the next weird action. Like we have a whole tension sequence where nobody dies only to then kill a character off in the very next scene. So it's that weird structure and pacing and stuff like that, that I just feel like that's a, that's the hallmark of a director. That's not as, not as good. And Again, Dominic Senna, I've seen him... I mean, Swordfish, for, for all of its faults, isn't a terrible movie. And I enjoy Gone in 60 Seconds. I think that's a fun a fun movie, and those are paced fairly well. This that and So this wasn't, and I think some of that is Dominic Senna, but I think some of it is having two different directors. Bringing in someone else to do your reshoots uh, hurts that when you bring in somebody. And, and, and a very different director in Brett Ratner. Um so yeah that's it I really like Rush Hour the first Rush Hour is great the second Rush Hour is very good the third Rush Hour is incredibly boring for me personally um, but it's also Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker so I'm gonna give it a pass um, <laughs> but you know I don't know I just anytime you bring in another director and try to reshoot and then cram that in. And apparently he brought his editor along too. So they were re-editing other stuff in the movie that, that makes it tough. So it's, it's hard for me to put all the blame on Ratner or all the blame on Senna because they're both trying to work with other people's stuff. Um, yeah, but it's just, a, it's a movie that I feel like had potential and they just didn't realize it. And, and, they should have leaned into one way or the other, like either really go for some sort of authenticity and really try to take itself seriously. But, but 
somehow they did like they tried to take itself too seriously while also being tongue in cheek. Like they can't have both. You gotta gotta try and get in one direction or another. Go full James Gunn, or or you know make yourself a serious uh, kind of action piece with a little bit of levity. And they they had again they just needed to lean into lean into the buddy cop aspect of it, lean into the ridiculousness, and make it make it actually like an old Corman film, one of these old low budget sci-fi fantasy epic things where they're trying to make an epic movie, but they just don't have the budget for that. Like I'm fine with those. This one just didn't quite hit. Like it missed the mark. I think is for the, at the end of the day for me. And that's unfortunate because again, Nick Cage, Nick Cage is fun. Um, but <laughs> he is. And Ron Perlman. I mean, it, it, I, I don't want to say it's a waste of Ron Perlman because again, he's enjoyable in this. It's a waste of Rory McCann is what it is. I'm convinced he must not have actually been cast. He must have just been like passing through. He's like on his way to Game of Thrones and like, hey, Rory, <laughs> you're, you're here. Can we put some costume on you and just have you in this one scene? <laughs> <laughs> you never know. That might have happened. I Honestly, I think that opening was one of the reshoots. I think some of the reshoots were that cold open and then stuff at the end, I think is what they reshot. Because that whole opening just doesn't even feel like it was part of the same production none and setting it a hundred years prior. So nobody that's involved in the rest of the story is part of that. So maybe that's what happened. So yeah, maybe it is. And you're like, all right, we need to put something in to make this ending make sense that we slapped on. There you go. So they shoved that in. Yep. I bet maybe. you. Now I'm glad I watched it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I'm glad I didn't pay for it in theater. I'm not, I don't want my time back. I'm not mad I watched it, which happens with movies occasionally. But can you imagine if the acting were also bad? Like, it having so many good actors is the only reason I don't want my time back. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They pulled this through. Absolutely. Like, while the script isn't great and the directing is middling, the acting and the, the quality of the performances and the quality of the production design is what makes this worth watching. Um, and makes it where, like you, I don't mourn the time I spent watching it at all. Like, I'm not upset that I watched Season of the Witch. Um, it's and a shame because you didn't have one director just for the consistency of, like, the accents coming in and out. That's the director's job going, hey, <laughs> get back in character. That's the director's job for everybody except Nick Cage. Nick Cage is going to be off on his own world doing his thing because he's Nicolas Cage. Like, that's just what he does. Um, yeah. but yeah, you're right. No, you're, you're right. There, there, there's that inconsistency. And that was my biggest gripe. And as I'm looking through my notes, I can see where I wrote myself notes of like inconsistency. What's going on here? Why is this, why is this going this way? I just, I, I come back to the way Bayman flipped and went from, I want to protect this young girl. I feel like she's innocent to, nope, I'm going to kill her. There was no in between. There was no transition to that. He just sort of had the decision while he was riding on the cart that I'm going to now kill this person because she is apparently actually a witch. So, yeah, it, it was because he was, like I said, very paladin. We're staying on mission. We're doing what is right. We're doing what we promised to do. We're fulfilling our duty mm-hmm. to nope, going to kill her. It was so out of character. I mean, they, they could have shoved some little mystical hokum in there even where yeah. he suddenly realized he had been enchanted or something. Right, something. But they didn't bother. 
again, it, it's it's like the reveal of the demon. The movie didn't earn that because it didn't set it up. Yeah. Like so, not a good movie, but not the worst movie I've ever seen either. It's if you if you come across not even it on the a, worst Nick Cage movie I've ever seen. Also true. Uh, if you come across it on on a streaming service, it's you know it's a fun watch. Uh, it's one of those I think that is improved watching it with other people, um, because I think that it does have it has some riffable moments. It's got some enjoyable moments to it, but it definitely it it falls solidly in the lower third of Nick Cage movies for me, but definitely not the worst. There are there are some bad ones. But it's, it's that thing where Cage can be whacked out and weird like he is in Vampire's Kiss, which is all... You, you can't help but remember that movie because it's just so weird. Or he can be really good. I mean, uh, last year we talked about Lord of War for Cage Month. And if you haven't seen that movie before, see that movie. It is fantastic. And he is really good in it. I mean, when he wants to be, Nick Cage can be really good. Um, here he was... He didn't phone it in, but I've seen him be better. So watch this movie for Ron Perlman, though. I will say that. Because <laughs> uh, if there's one thing that can save a movie, it's it's The Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Going going back a little ways on that one. Um, well, September, I want to say thanks for you coming on and suggesting this one. Um, this was a ton of fun. I hadn't seen it, so uh, I... I I had a really good time uh, talking about this with you tonight. So thank you. Um, oh, me too. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, you have uh, at least one show I know of that you probably want to let people know where they can they can hear that. But let people know where they can find what you're doing and what you do. Okay. I actually have two shows currently. One is called Geek Grills. Uh, we record on Monday evenings, three Mondays a month. We have a production meeting the first Monday on Twitch, so you can find us at geekgrills.com, on Patreon, on Twitch, and all of that. I can be found at 9 of 12, which is N-I-N-E-O-F-1-2. My other show is called Heresy and Hearsay. Um, I have a friend who's a theologian, trained at Belmont Abbey, and I was in politics for like the last 15, 20 years. So I'm kind of the nuts and bolts. He wants to reclaim his religion from people misusing it in the political forum. And you can find that at heresyandhearsay.com and also on Twitch and YouTube and all the places. Excellent. Excellent. I have listened to Geek Girls quite a bit, and I do enjoy that. I do need to uh, – I'll have to check out Heresy and Hearsay. Sounds interesting. It's – you know, you're not supposed to talk about religion or politics, but we're just talking about both. Right. <laughs> Might as well do them both at once. So awesome. Well, so yeah, Monday nights, um, Monday evenings, most weeks is Geek Grills. I have uh, – I do occasionally pop in for that. Um, so yeah, totally check those out, everybody. Uh, Geek Grills and Heresy and Hearsay, which I will never be able to spell right. Just, just so you know. That's okay. <laughs> One of my co-hosts on Grills can pronounce it. Oh, well, that would. Um, now this show I record Sunday nights, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. So if you want to be like Phil or Amy, um, and hang out in the chat room, uh, I love seeing people in the chat. It's always great. The show is, uh, in podcast form on Wednesdays and you can get that anywhere you get podcasts. The easiest way to find it is to go to TV's There's a big subscribe button there. And that'll take you to all the platforms that you can you can get it on, or you can grab the RSS feed and throw it into your favorite podcatcher. Um, if you listen, 
to the show uh, and you want to leave us, leave me a review um, and a rating, that does help make the show more discoverable when people are searching like Apple Podcasts for movie discussions. So uh, I do appreciate that. And uh, there, there's probably going to be some Patreon type stuff coming in the near future for me. So um, keep an ear out for that. I'm TV's Travis on Twitter and in pretty much any social media platform. Um, and uh, and I always like getting in discussions about uh, movies, comic books, uh, TV shows, music, whatever. I, I just like all sorts of stuff and I like talking about it. So um, yeah, until now next week. We're continuing Cage of Palooza, and I'm going to watch, uh, for the first time ever, Trapped in Paradise. I've never seen it. Um, all I know about it is it stars Nicolas Cage, John Lovitz, and Dana Carvey. And I don't know what else to uh They're trapped in some small town around Christmas, I think. Uh, and that's all I know. I remember the movie existing. Um, I remember seeing ads for it, but I couldn't tell you a thing about it now. So that'll be next week. Um, and then the last two weeks of... Uh, August are going to be a lot of fun too. Um, and uh, I'll let you know about those as we get closer to it. But until next time, September, thank you again. Uh, anytime you want to come back, I will be happy to have you back and we can talk about a different movie. It doesn't have to be Nick Cage next time. So, um, okay. <laughs> there's, there's no restrictions. Uh, but until next week in Trapped in Paradise, enjoy your movies. And, um, you know... Let's just be excellent to each other, okay? This has been Wayne you haven't seen. I've seen girls destroy men without lifting a finger. How many times do we need to go over this? We were in France, for God's sake. <laughs> Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>